The book of Job presents the story of a man who, other than Jesus, is arguably the best man in all of Scripture, so that none of us can say we're better and deserve more. And it describes a set of events that are so devastating that none of us can say we have it worse. All of us, then, are drawn into this story to learn how to sit in disaster, how to survive it. We've described the book of Job as an epic poem. We have come through the epilogue. So where we are coming today is scene one, act one. Job chapter one. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burnt up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came in and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. We're calling it a tragedy observed. It came suddenly and without warning. The scene begins simply with one day, like any other day, disaster rarely warns us in advance. It does come on us like that, right? Oh yeah, sometimes we can look back and say, oh, I should have seen that coming. (laughs) But when it comes, we're rarely prepared for it. And that's why The point of the first week that we made when the author describes who Job was as this godly good man, it matters who you are in life so that when disaster comes, because it comes without warning, you can respond to it in a way that not only you survive, but you grow. That certainly is one reason why we should pay attention to our soul, to our heart, to the foundation we're building because tragedy comes suddenly and without warning. Another thing about this is that this is systematic and devastating. Remember, we're talking poetry. It's written like a song. It's like the opening musical number of Job the Musical. Think about it, four verses. The first performer is servant number one. The Sabians, who were, by the way, marauders. They were a gang of thugs. Wherever they saw an opportunity, they jumped in and took advantage. They're like the disaster where people come along and we're just in their path. And we're victims of their selfishness and their, their mean-spiritedness. That, that's what the Sabians represent. The servant says, they've taken all of your oxen and your donkeys and they've killed the servants. You see, oxen and donkeys in that economy were the working animals. They were the beasts of burden. In a modern time, 
If Job were a uh, manufacturer, it would be like somebody saying, hey, a group of thugs came in and they destroyed all your factory machinery. It's all gone, it's all been destroyed. But here's where you get the fact that this is a performance piece. There's a verse, there's a chorus or a refrain, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. You can almost sing it. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. (laughs) Sing it with me. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then there's the turn. While he was still speaking, that's the turn, and then we come back to verse two. The second performer comes on stage and says, the fire of God, which may have been lightning, or it may have been the judgment type of fire of God, like Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't know exactly, but it literally consumes the sheep and the servants. Now, the sheep represent your product, your resources, right? Sheep provide food, they provide wool that you use to manufacture and make cloth. So going back to our modern analogy, it would be like saying to that business owner, not only did somebody come in and destroy your factory, your warehouse burnt down and all your stock is gone. You've got nothing to sell to recover. And then the chorus, sing it with me. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you the turn, and while he was still speaking, and then servant number three comes in and says, I've got bad news. The Chaldeans were an organized group. It was premeditated. They divide themselves into three bands and strategically attack and steal the camels. The camels in an agrarian culture were beasts of trade and transport. So to go back to our our modern analogy, it would be like saying that all your factory machinery was destroyed by vandals, so you can't make anything anymore. All your product has been burned, so you can't sell it in order to recover. Oh, and by the way, your fleet of trucks got stolen. And did I mention all your workers are dead? And I am the only one. Thank you. You're getting the spirit. And then performer four comes in and says, from the desert, a great wind has come, and where your family was meeting in your brother's home, that great wind, which could have been a tornado, or could have been a great wall of wind, as often happens in Sahara-type environments, comes and the building collapses, and all your children are dead. And maybe the refrain turns to minor, And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Devastating. Satan takes full advantage of the permissions he's given, and he attacks Job in every way that he possibly can, in an orchestrated set of waves, one after the other. It's like a left hook and a right hook and then a belly punch and then an uppercut. Down for the count. Systematic and devastating. This also includes both acts of men and what insurance companies might call acts of God. There are the acts of careless, thoughtless people who just take advantage of you because they can. And then there's those times when people plan and know that what they're planning will harm you and and they do it anyway. But then there's the acts of nature or what we call acts of God. 
What do they say? Bad things come in three, or is that good things? Yeah, bad things in, in, in Job's case came in four. And besides that, there was no place to hide. Satan attacks him from all sides. The Sabians come from the south. The fire of God comes from the west. The Chaldeans attack from the north. And the destructive wind comes from the east. He was completely helpless and unable to escape. Don't you often feel that way? When life hits you, you go, there's no place I can go to run from this. And then worst of all, and this is less clear right now, but it becomes very obvious the longer we study this book. What makes this really difficult is that God in all of it remains silent. Imagine that. You've followed God faithfully, you've trusted him, and when you need him the most, he's silent. How silent is he? 36 chapters will go by in this book before God speaks. That's a long time. And and that's why we're gonna sit in this this week so that we understand that there are seasons in our life when we feel like we need God most and, and there are times we just can't find him and we feel abandoned by him. And here's the thing I wanna talk about today. Our desire when we face hardship like this is get me out of this. Get me out of it quick, right? And we presume that's what God wants for us. Doesn't God want us to get out of this too? But sometimes God's silence indicates a different plan for us. You see, there is value in sitting in our circumstances waiting on God. And so we're gonna talk for a little bit about when life hurts and God is silent and how that can be actually a gift and blessing. Now, I have had like pretty much everybody here devastating circumstances. Our family has experienced it. And God was very present through the whole thing. The one that comes to my mind is um, years ago when Anna was a freshman in college, she uh, was in a severe car accident. She's got broken ribs today, and as you know, that was from trying to snowboard. Very short career on the slopes, one and done, I think. (laughs) She was a passenger in a rollover in Vermont, and at that time, I was in Virginia driving south to visit Tommy, who was a student at Liberty University. I was delivering a car to him. I get a phone call, uh, nurse, from upstate Vermont, said, Mr. Sparling, where are you? Um, Can you pull over? And I am told that Anna was in a a car accident. And what I've learned, I I think I'm pretty accurate to say that Anna may very well have flatlined multiple times. She tells a story while she's laying there out in the country. Took a long time for medical help to come. She remembers laying there, feeling her body get cold and watching an angel come towards her. And saying out loud, I'm not ready for that. There's stuff I want to do. And um, Anyway, she finally got to the hospital, and, and the nurse had called me to let me know what was going on. And then the nurse had to cut off quick, and there was a code red, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that was Anna also. So here I am heading south in Virginia. My daughter's up in Vermont fighting for her life. And my only option is to keep driving south. 
not knowing if my daughter had survived. And my prayer was not profound. It was not pastoral. And I said it out loud. I was all alone in my car driving south. And I just said this, are you going to show up? That's all I could say. But what I can tell you is in that circumstance, God did show up. I felt his presence in that car. As a family, we felt covered by God. He carried us. It was a powerful, wonderful thing to know his presence in those circumstances. But that's not what God always does. For me, the one that stands out is um, seven years ago, after I had invested 10 years in a, in a congregation, God had blessed, and we had grown, and inevitably in a growing church, um, change happens, and people uh, aren't happy with some of that change, or aren't happy with the direction, and sometimes aren't happy with the pastor, I get that too. But then sometimes that turns ugly, and I found myself um, being characterized as a person who was dishonest, who had no integrity, who um, didn't work hard, who didn't love people. And ultimately that characterization won the day and I, I found myself no longer leading that church. Now, if you're a person like me, whose core wound is around affirmation, if you could picture the perfect storm, it's exactly what happened there. To have your reputation, your character, your honesty, uh, the, the thing that you'd committed yourself to that God's blessed, being told that you had nothing to do with that and we'd be better off without you. And then, unintentionally, but very stupidly, communication that was meant for the congregation went out to the broad mailing list which included all my ministry contacts for all the years I'd served in New England. So now my name has been defamed in my character, challenged across a region that I'd given 20 years of my life to. And I found myself sitting in my home office, and God was quiet. I was just sitting in my ruins and not hearing God. I didn't know if I'd ever serve in ministry again. In fact, I'd been told I, I wasn't qualified and I wasn't equipped for it, that I should go off and lead music someplace. I'm getting too deep into this, I'm sorry. It's becoming a counseling session, isn't it? Sorry about that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that, sorry. But what I did not see at the time is all that God did in that silent waiting, in sitting in the ruins that I now see was his gift. And that's what I want to share with you. When life hurts and God seems silent, the first thing I've learned, and I think there are others here who would say it, is that God's silence is not the same as his absence. It doesn't mean he's abandoned us and he doesn't care. And we see that at the end of Job. God heard every single word, every debate. He knows everything. He did not abandon him. He just chose to be quiet. Silence is not the same as his absence. And the thing that flows out of that is that God's silence actually teaches us to listen in new ways. He's just asking us to listen a little harder. 
What I can say is during that time, yeah, there was a lot of pity parties, but there was this time of looking deep into my life and my heart and becoming so much more aware of things that would never have shown up were I not sitting in that disaster. That was God speaking to me about me. You see, I think that's that still small voice that needs silence for us to hear. You, you, you learn to listen to God. You learn to listen by looking back at the past as David does so often in his Psalms and remember that God speaks out of the past and can give us confidence for this season as well. And then there's the fact that God is never truly silent because his word is alive and is always speaking to us. You see, God being silent in the ways we're looking for him to speak is just God saying, learn to listen differently because there's transformation in those other ways that I come to you. And the third is that sitting among the ruins provides a powerful perspective of our lives. There are things about life, about faith, about God, about yourself, even about scripture, that you can only see clearly when you're looking from the bottom up. And if you're never down there, you never gain that perspective. And that perspective is where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes most when we're looking up from the bottom. There's transformation, there's wisdom to be gained when we sit in the silence and in the ruins of our hopes and our dreams. And then finally, waiting among the ruins frees us from our dependency and fear of loss. You know what I came to discover as one day turned into another and turned into weeks and still waiting to know what what God was going to do, and you, you know what really happened? Life. <laughs> there was a morning every day. There was food. There was love. Life went on. The worst thing I could imagine happened to me, and I was still living and breathing. And I still had years to live. Ha! <laughs> The worst thing I could imagine for a person like me happened to me, and I survived. And so it frees you from the fear before you lose those things of what your life will be if they're gone. When they're gone, you realize they weren't the source of life. You're free from them. You're no longer dependent on them. And here's the other thing. It's like coming back from the dead. You're a little fearless. You know, I think Lazarus had no problem when he died the second time. I think it was no sweat for him. Because, you know, he did die a second time. You guys know that, right? Yeah. It wasn't a permanent fix. When what you're holding on, what you're counting on for life is gone, you lose the fear that once held you. And I can look back now and realize that there were things, even in my leadership as a pastor, that I did not speak into for fear. I convinced myself I was being gracious and tolerant. What I was was being fearful. And so one of the things that you're living with is a pastor who's the result of that. And that's why I'm, you know, yeah, I'm weepy, but I am kind of fearless on the areas of leadership. I'm willing to say things. 
And uh, I'm willing to take some hard stands because I know there's life on the end of those two. What liberty there is in that. I think God needed to do that to prepare me to lead this church. Yeah. So, oh, friends, God's silence and the ruins of our dreams is a place where life comes, where God transforms. It's a gift. It is not God working against you. It is God fighting for you. Let's say this verse. I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's your assignment this week. Not only not only in our study of Job, just to sit in it, but in your own life, in your circumstances. Lots of wounds here. Look around you, just make some eye contact around you. I know it's kind of awkward. If you're visiting, you're, you're exempt from that. You, you may look at your knees. <laughs> just look around. There are stories in this room of devastation. Some people in the midst of it right now. It's hard. But God is at work in it. There's something there for you if you learn to listen in new ways. There's freedom on the other end. Amen. Amen.